was straight out of combat radio presented by Green Zone Hero and hosted by the Heroes Media Group. Our guest today is Ethan Samuels, a Navy veteran, made it to the Navy, not the usual route. He started out in the civilian sector first in his job and then got out, went back in, went through Navy OCS, made it back to the Middle East. Uh, he's got a great um, great story and uh, his insights on, on what makes things successful and what makes things happen is a story definitely worth listening to this is ethan samuels thank you for listening to straight out of combat radio your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night you were born to fight you gotta light them up my name is john Crotech, and i want to welcome you to straight out of combat radio audio medicine by green zone hero we're here to honor the wisdom of america's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all burn it down. Our guest today is Ethan Samuels, the Navy veteran. Uh, he served honorably as an intelligence officer from 2009 to 2015. And during that time, he was in the Middle East. He was an act, actually a Middle East subject matter expert for Carrier Strike Group 1, on board the USS Carl Vincent, and I know a lot of people have heard of that one, as the carrier strike group sailed through the Arabian Gulf during the Arab Spring. His carrier air wing, carrier air wing 17, provided close air support for fighting men and women on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan. During these engagements, Ethan led the debrief team and developed the standard operating procedures for obtaining accurate mission reports for the electronic attack squadron. It sounds pretty sophisticated to me. We'll get more into that as we go along. His expertise in the Middle East came from his time at the University of Chicago, where he majored in Near Eastern languages and civilizations with a focus on the Islamic Middle East and the Arab, Arabic language. This background served him especially well as it led to his first job at a college as a civilian Arabic interpreter for deployed troops in Iraq in 2008. Since having left the Navy... Ethan has become a powerhouse in the financial services field as a top producer for several leading agencies, including Northwestern Mutual. He now serves as the COO, Chief Operating Officer for U.S. Vet Life, a financial startup specializing in helping service members, veterans, and their families successfully navigate and leverage the benefits and benefits market both in and out of the military. And it's exactly where I met Ethan was just this past week up in Orlando at the Military Influencers Conference. And I got to tell you, he's a smart guy. He knows what he wants to do. And I'm thrilled to death to have him here on the show today. Hey, Ethan. Hey, John. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. Man, it is a wonderful introduction. You're welcome. Okay, man. So listen, we're, you know, you know, we're here to tell your story. And I heard a little bit of it over in Orlando but we want to hear more of it. And, and, you know, to start out, tell us a little bit about your family background, you know, who your mentors were, were you know, through school and, and how you even made it to the Navy. Um, my family background for, is not the typical story that you'd hear for a lot of service members. Um, my father was a, is a, a very talented, very um, accomplished uh, corporate attorney in uh, Southern California and a nice, uh, very large uh, Jewish family in which I grew up. I, I um, 
wound up uh, being sent to on this uh, really cool Israel exchange program uh, when I was 15 back in 2001. This was um, around the time that the uh, second second um, intifada was uh, really heating up. I got a little close for to, for comfort to some of the uh, more heinous um, attacks on uh, civilians that happened and uh, culminating in the uh, Dolphinarium bombing. And then uh, a couple of months later, I came back to the States and it was uh, September 11th. And um, I saw that this um, these acts of terrorism and, uh, you know, particularly ones perpetrated by um, Islamic, Islamic uh, terrorists uh, with ties to the Brotherhood and other Islamo-fascist organizations were going to be a uh, strategic challenge that, uh, you know, that the United States was going to have to tackle. And it was going to be a long-term strategic challenge. I knew that that was going to be... Um, that I knew that it was going to be um, something we'd have to deal with, and I knew that having a background in the Middle East, having a background in um, understanding uh, the language, was going to be a uh, was going to be very necessary for anybody who wanted to affect change positively on a strategic level in the United States. When I first graduated high school, I told my dad I wanted to join the military. I just said, "No way, you're going to college first. Um, and uh, the, as a as it happened, uh, the University of Chicago um, accepted me with open arms. I had a, an amazing Middle Eastern Studies department. I actually met a number of, uh, I made a number of friends, uh, you know, who were actually from the Middle East and got very close with my Arabic professor, this amazing jovial guy named Farouk Mustafa, who um, actually was an interpreter for the United Nations. He uh, he took a personal interest in me. And um, I took I took a personal interest in the class. This is a little bit off topic, but he had a extra credit project that I loved, where um, at the end of every quarter, after we took our final exam, we'd all line up outside of his office. He'd set a timer for two minutes, and we'd have two minutes to tell him a joke using the vocabulary we learned. And if we could make him laugh without him asking for any explanation or anything like that, it was an automatic half-letter grade. Awesome, man. Yeah. So could you, do you remember the joke? Um, actually, it was a contrived dialogue between George W. Bush and Saddam Hussein that actually scored me the most points. And that, there, um, I would actually attribute my ability to imitate accents as much as uh, my Arabic uh, vocabulary. But I basically had George W. Bush um, addressing a crowd going, Yeah, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you. And I said, Gee, Dan, you know, I'm going to tell you, 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 I'm going to so I just said, my fellow Americans, I'm very pleased and glad to tell you that I won the American presidential election for real this time. <laughs> That's <laughs> great, man. So no wonder you got extra credit. No, you, oh, made yeah. the, you made the best points on that, huh? Oh, yeah. No, I, I love that. And, <laughs> and um, one thing that, uh, that, he, that I really appreciated about this guy is, uh, you know, he's from Egypt. He's from Tanta. He could, he could have been one of the most close-minded people in the world, but, uh, you know, he was very cosmopolitan, very well-educated, and um, he was willing to, uh, you know, spend some time with me, even though I came from a background that, uh, you know, stereotypically, if you, if you believe what you read in the newspaper, um, would have had us butting heads, because, you know, I'm Jewish, I'm, I, you know, I, I, I support the state of Israel, he's Egyptian, he's a, what's it called, he's for reform in, in Egypt, and he hates the fact that the United States had been in bed with the um, Egyptian uh, longtime strongman president, Hosni Mubarak, for such a long time. But, you know, he didn't hold any of that against me. I didn't hold anything against him. It was, it was, it was really awesome. So you fast forward um, to after I graduated. For about six months, I couldn't find a job. And um, I was thinking about um, going to OCS. And then again, my folks uh, kind of deterred me from that. But um, I got a phone call from the State Department. One of the places I put my resume was usajobs.gov. 
and they were asking me how good my Arabic really was. And I, at, this, at this point, I kind of thought someone was pranking me. So I actually launched into a, a much cruder version of um, another joke that I had told in Arabic. One was about a middle-aged lady who went into a uh, pet store to buy a parrot, and the only parrot they had, uh, you know, grew up in houses of ill repute. <laughs> Offline, I'll tell you that one. No, but, um, it's all good. I wanna be, uh, definitely want to hear that one. I'll, I'll definitely tell you that one in a little bit. But um, the the uh, translation recruiter was laughing his guts out, and uh, he's like, "All right, kid." Um, can we fly you out to D.C.? We want to interview you for a position as a translator for the trips in Iraq. So I figured, uh, you know, what do I got to lose? So I, I, I flew out there. It was kind of a surreal experience. I was the only American kid over there, uh, you know, who wasn't uh, native, um, who wasn't uh, native to any um, Arabic-speaking country. But the written exam was pretty easy. I kept practicing uh, with um, a number of uh, locals, you know, Chaldean Christians, um, cop. Uh, uh, Coptic Christians, uh, Moroccans, Egyptians, Lebanese—you know—people who had come to the United States and were, uh, you know, get, being offered, uh, you know, uh, some pretty big uh, taxpayer-funded bucks to provide uh, translation services. A couple mo- uh, a month or so later, I found myself on a jet heading to Kuwait. And that was really kind of that, that um, experience in Iraq was sort of what prompted me to join the military. And I'll explain what I mean. So, unlike most people, I started as a civilian contractor and then joined the military. Whereas uh, for most people, it's the other way around. Yeah, which is not the usual, you know, process exactly. No, it's not. And uh, so I had to kind of be quick on my feet. I had to make friends with, with uh, my unit and I had to, you know, work really hard to gain credibility because despite the fact that I was American, I was in a job that's usually given to local nationals. So I had to work doubly hard to, you know, you know number one, to um, show my prowess as a translator and number two, to uh, gain the trust of my unit. But we wound up uh, getting along just fine after a little while. I wound up working for the human exploitation team attached to uh, 1st Battalion, 9th Marines out of uh, Ramadi. And uh, this was amazing. You know, Ramadi was kind of at the epicenter of the Sunni Triangle. And um, she was also the birthplace of um, the Sunni Awakening. We had mentioned um, the Qatayib Tharat al-Ishrim, which was known as the 1920 Revolutionary Martyrs Brigade that had been affiliated with al-Qaeda in Iraq, that had, during the uh, surge of 2007, switched sides and uh, joined uh, General Petraeus in uh, helping break the back of al-Qaeda in Iraq within the Sunni Triangle. To be where it all started, we had, we had uh, really two assignments, helping um, members of the of, uh, that group, which had actually reformed as al-Sahwal al-Sunnah, meaning the Sunni Awakening, we were helping them um, obtain positions of power on the one hand, and uh, on the other hand, helping them root out potential former um, Al-Qaeda in Iraq informants who might still be on the payroll. That's uh, and that's a lot that you don't really hear a lot about, you know, and especially going in as a civilian first. Did you, what did you believe that we were fighting for when you were there as an interpreter? I kind of went in there, um, I was a little bit mixed about whether, you know, about the, um, about, about whether we belonged over there. I was a little bit mixed about uh, whether Iraq, the Iraq war was really the most worthwhile use of resources. But, you know, regardless of all that stuff, we were in it. We had to win it. Um, we owed it to the Iraqi people, uh, you know, to leave the place better than when we came in. We had uh, taken down Saddam Hussein. There was going to be a huge power vacuum and there was going to be a struggle. We were there basically to prevent Iraq from falling to the Brotherhood, from falling to Iran, from falling to Al-Qaeda. 
and uh, to give the uh, people within Iraq some opportunity to to uh, rebuild the country in an image that uh, you know that, that was not a thug, a secularist thug run oligopoly uh, oligarchy the way that it was under Saddam Hussein, but we also wanted to make sure that it didn't turn into some sort of Islamo-fascist uh, theocracy. You know, we could. I figured uh, we could debate the merits of actually going and starting the war after we'd won it. So that was kind of uh, that was kind of my philosophy, and that was sort of um, the mentality of a lot of people that uh, you know with whom I worked over there. You know, Ethan. So you know, what kept you focused? And and you just said a minute ago that you know to be there at the beginning of all of this was pretty exciting. You know, what kept you focused? And what was your most memorable experience, good or bad, during that That's- time? Let's see. Well, what kept me focused? Um, I knew that I, I really, I actually really liked and respected the people I was with. Um, these uh, Marines, um, most of them were, uh, you know, pr- relatively junior enlisted people. You know, corporals. They were just so amazing, so professional, so great at their jobs, so results oriented, so mission focused, and they were also, you know, and they were also very willing to help me, uh, very willing to kind of stick their neck out for me. They really, I really felt like I was a part of the unit. That, that became kind of my driving force. I fed off of, off of off of their commitment to the mission. It was really unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Uh, you know, you, you go to uh, the business world; people aren't super results oriented uh, most of the time. You got, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, know, you get out of assistance like, oh, I, um, you know, I'm, I'm out at five, or uh, you get you got people who uh, you know say, well, I did my I did my best. That's always enough. No, like the bottom line is uh, the military. You got a hill to take. You take that hill. The hill doesn't care, uh, you know, about your personal life or whether you had enough sleep or anything like that. You got it. You have an objective. You have a mission, and uh, you accomplish that mission. And um, the the best memory that I have in Iraq, and probably one of the most painful ones, was um, the day I actually got blood stripped. I was a civilian at the time. There's a uh, ritual in the Marine Corps in which a uh, newly promoted corporal undergoes a uh, uh, undergoes a, an initiation where everybody, corporal and above, every enlisted man, corporal and above, participates. I, I walked through a gauntlet of Marines who uh, punched me in the shoulder and kicked me in the leg. I, I, I got I got through all of that, and then afterwards, uh, because I had participated in this ritual of uh, shared pain. I was treated a little bit more like a member of the unit. This was, um, I actually felt honored to have uh, partaken in this stuff. I mean, I know that type of behavior is uh, now not very well, is not, is not condoned and uh, definitely not encouraged. And, uh, you know, I'm, I have kind of split feelings in terms of how I feel about that because on the one hand, you know, there was the possibility of somebody being injured. There was the possibility of somebody losing the ability to walk and stuff like that. And um, I, I totally get that. But on the other hand, there is a type of kinship that you feel with everybody who took part in that with you, who shared, whose pain you shared. There, there is a there is a type of uh, camaraderie and there is a type of uh, mutual devotion that comes from that type of situation. And um, the the ability of Marines and uh, people in the field to inspire loyalty and uh, to really get the job done is really um, unparalleled in any type of organization. That really stuck with me as I got to the uh, civilian yeah. uh, world. Well, that's definitely a good thing that you point out. You know, we call it, as you well know, you know, developing esprit de corps, teamwork, all yeah. the things that, and, and, and you do, and you, you, you eloquently said it. You know, people that have not been there, that have not been in those situations, 
it's hard to relay that. Even in the civilian world, you know, we get it, but the military does give a little bit of a different edge. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of that edge, um, the command, one of the commanding officers of Task Force Ramadi was this really no-nonsense, no-frills, very senior naval intelligence officer who had pretty much written one of the, one of the definitive uh, volumes on intelligence collaborations with uh, special forces. I was enthralled by his story and by his, uh, by his life. I actually wanted to be him a little bit. And I was taking every opportunity that I could, uh, you know, cut to come to work uh, with him at uh, Task Force Trumati, do whatever translation or drunk work I could just to, you know, learn more about him. And I asked him um, if I could actually join the Navy from Iraq. And uh, he thought I was, he thought I was this uh, eager beaver kind of a nutter. And he's like, nah, kid, you know, you can't, uh, you, you can't join from a, from a combat zone, unfortunately. You got to go, uh, you gotta, you'd have to resign your uh, position as a translator and uh, go to OCS uh, just like everybody else. I'm like, you're on, sir. After I'd been in Iraq for uh, just about a year, I uh, chose not to renew my contract, came back to the States. It was the most interesting conversation I'd had with my folks. I told my, I, was, I called my dad from Iraq. I said, Dad, I'm coming home. He's like, Great. I said, Yeah, I'm coming home so I can join the Navy. He's like, What? <laughs> big surprise, Dad. You know? <laughs> yeah, big surprise. So, so you came back and then you went into OCS. I did. I went through OCS. OCS was actually a humbling experience in and of itself. Because you know, I, I got there, I'm thinking to myself, oh man, I've spent all this time in Iraq in combat in Iraq combat zone. Uh, you know, what could, you know what could be harder than that? I expected that to be a breeze. Yeah, <laughs> let's go talk about being um, unprepared over there. It's um, even yeah, it's even like basic training. You know, you get, make it through basic training, and you think, oh my gosh, I just made it to my AIT. You know, for MOS training, and it's tougher. You think, oh, yeah. yeah. Anyhow, I get it. So tell us about OCS. I actually was. Um, Kind of seen as the weak link, actually, my first couple of weeks over there. And uh, uh, drill instructors, uh, you know, they, they loved, uh, pick, they loved uh, picking on me. And uh, we, uh, there was this uh, ridiculous inspection called uh, RLP, Room Locker and Personnel Inspection. You, you basically spend a week, uh, so you spend a month getting, re- getting ready for this thing. You're ironing and you're pressing the heck out of your shirts, your, your, your underwear, like everything they'll literally take a ruler to your underwear and measure it make sure that it's perfect six inch by six inch square and now of course it's impossible to actually fold a pair of uh tidy whitey boxer briefs to look like that so you got you're actually uh, taking an iron and taking a bunch of starch and pressing the crap out of this thing and god knows how you're going to wear it when it's over and you're making sure <laughs> You're making sure it's free of dust. You're making sure that it's free of loose threads, anything like that. And, uh, you know, a drill instructor will, um, will, you know, will come in with a ruler and, and uh, just measure everything, look at everything. And if you've got more than 20, uh, more than 20 imperfections to your room, your locker, or your uniform, then you fail. My first, uh, so a lot of the time when this is going on, your drill instructor is uh, making you exercise and uh, scream at the top of your lungs while they're searching for all this stuff. My drill instructor, uh, you know, knew uh, that I liked moving around. I liked exercising and stuff like that. So uh, he um, tortured me like crazy by keeping my feet six inches above my bed and holding my rifle above, uh, above it as well. And I got so I got so restless and uh, you know so annoyed standing in that position that I don't know what I was thinking. I actually reached for my pillow while he was um, inspecting me. And uh, of course, that was one of the stupidest things Big that you could mistake, have done. You know. Oh, God. And he, he pounced like a shark smelling blood in the water. He's like, uh, you know, if by some miracle you pass the reinspection, Samuels, I'm going to take you out to the sand pit. I'm going to spray you down 
until you um, until you quit. Um, I did pass the reinspect. I thought it was by mistake. He he um, did exactly what he said he was going to do in a, in a way that would um, make that uh, scene from that movie, an officer and a gentleman, uh, you know, look uh, very tame. He took me to the sand pit and tortured me. Um, he kept that yelling at me to spell Dorito. Because, uh, you know, what are the first letters of Dorito? D-O-R. Um, drill instructors are not allowed really to kick somebody that they think is unworthy out of um, officer candidate school, but they are very good at getting people that they think can't hack it to quit on their own. And that was what this guy was trying to do. Um, I surprised them by not quitting. I surprised them by spelling Dorito phonetically. You know, Delta, Oscar, Romeo, India, Tango, Oscar. Oh, yeah. And that wound up. Let's go. That that was uh, kind of the turning point for my experience over there, and I was it was the turning point for uh, him sort of leaving me alone. I mean, I didn't. I wouldn't say that I had a flawless uh, subsequent experience, but it was def- it definitely uh, was made significantly easier. Wow. I also really felt um, a little bit more respect for the rest of my classmates because uh, whatever our backgrounds going in there, wherever we'd come from, we were all kind of reduced to the same level of crap at the beginning and it was kind of our job to raise ourselves out of that crap and um, we could, nobody can do that on their own. Uh, the class kind of had to uh, form that same type of uh, battlefield camaraderie and um, it was, it was kind of tough because there's always a couple of people who are going through this stuff who really can't, um, who really can't hack it and it's hard because uh, on the one hand you're, you're close with some of these people, you want them to, you know, you, you don't want anything ill from them but on the other hand uh, they, they are um, they are bringing down the rest of the team, and they're making it harder on themselves in the process. And uh, they're, they're just the kind of people you don't want watching your back in the foxhole. For, yeah. uh, you know. Well, congr- well, you made it. Congratulations, you obviously made it. Did, did anybody come to your graduation? Did your folks show up? Actually, yeah, my folks, my brother, my sister, and um, my grandparents. My my grandfather was actually a chaplain in the U.S. Air Force. He's a he's a rabbi. We had the opportunity to allow anybody we wanted came with us to actually conduct our commissioning oaths before we took our oaths as a class. So my grandfather actually commissioned me into the U.S. Navy. That's very uh, cool, man. That, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, Rabbi and First Lieutenant Morton Wallach, U.S. Air Force, retired. Nice, man. And then you went right back to the Middle East right after that. Actually, no. I went through Intel school, and then I, I got assigned to um, Strike Fighter Squadron 2-2, also known as the Fighting Redcocks. And I kid you not, our motto was, you can't beat a Redcock. <laughs> we, we can talk offline, but, you know, where do they come up, <laughs> where do they come up with that stuff? <laughs> Never mind. Uh, beats me, but uh, no, it was, um, it was an F-18 squadron. Think of the uh, larger two-seater F-18 Super Hornets. I, th- I think, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, person that I am today really came from my time with that uh, with, with that squadron. Um, you know, these guys had these guys, these guys were some of the most talented people I'd ever seen. You know, these you know they were naval naval aviators. They're in a class all by themselves. You know, they, they can take off and land on a moving ship, provide combat air support. Uh, you know, um, getting everything um, getting everything from their takeoff to their landing to their launch parameters of any air to ground ordnance. Uh, you know exactly right. You know, they felt they've all gone through Top Gun in order to train. And in bad, Gun, bad weather, too. They could do all that in bad weather. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, these guys, when you're landing on an aircraft carrier in the middle of, um, in the middle of uh, lousy weather, this, you, still got, you still have to be able to do that. And you've got a limited amount of fuel. You've got a limited amount of tries. 
And uh, you have to land on that thing. And uh, their, their ability to, you know, perform carrier arrested landings was unbelievable. It was, you know, it was enthralling. Thankfully, um, I was not a pilot. I never had to do that. I was the uh, squadron intelligence officer attached to their uh, unit. So that, that actually required me to do, um, th- it required me to actually develop some comprehension of um, aviation, which, you know, which I had absolutely no experience in. I mean, you know, the U.S. Navy, just like any military, it's, you know, kind of one body, one billet. And at first I thought, oh, my God, what the heck are they doing? You know, they're, they're wasting me out here. But I realized one of the geniuses of the military in, in particular and uh, in the intelligence community in general is that uh, they teach you how to become really, really comfortable in an area in which you really don't know what the heck you're doing. Um, I had, thankfully, I had some of the most patient and understanding colleagues uh, from within the um, aviation squadron, and I also had some of the most brilliant and accomplished young intelligence specialists I could have ever asked for. And these guys, uh, you know, were a couple years younger than I was, but they'd spent years already in the military, and they already knew what the heck they were doing. I'd, I'd read enough stories of enough um, junior officers who thought they were, their, you know, what didn't stink, who go to the units expecting to be put in charge and stuff like that, and then just being laughed out of their office by their and by their um, enlisted uh, sailors of whom they're supposed to be in charge. So I just basically laid it out there. I'm like, you know, I know you guys know how to do my job better than I do. I know you guys have been in this field and uh, in this role a lot longer than I have, but this is where we're at. The better it's called, um, I promise you this, uh, the better you make me look, the easier I can make your lives. I really want to make your lives as easy as I possibly can. All you guys have to do is make me look like I know what I'm doing. Thankfully, my my sailors, um, they didn't need to be told twice. They rose to the challenge. They trained me. They um, educated me on the uh, on the uh, basic needs of an um, aviation squadron. Um, they helped educate me on my um, aviation terminology. They even helped murder board me uh, for uh, briefs that I had to give um, at Top Gun. And they actually... They gave me probably one of the easiest tours of duty anybody could ever have within an aviation squadron. And uh, so as we were preparing to deploy as part of Carrier Air Wing 17 on board the uh, USS Carl Vinson, um, this was a completely reorganized team, and a lot of us were uh, getting to meet each other for the first time. Um, we had um, a new admiral brought aboard with, um, with his staff, this admiral was uh, Rear Admiral uh, Samuel J. Perez Jr. He's a guy that I I will I'll still uh, you know if I ever see him again he needs anything from me uh, you know including any one of my organs I'll gladly donate it to him no questions asked that's how amazing this guy was and um, his um, his N two the senior intelligence officer for his carrier strike group turned out to be none other than that same commander at Task Force Ramadi with whom I'd worked all the, you know, those, oh, you know, yeah. a year earlier. So we were giving the in-briefs about the uh, area of responsibility to which we were preparing to deploy, which at the time was the Western Pacific. And uh, he pulled me aside and I said, hey, kid, do you speak Arabic? I'm like, yes, sir. He's like, were you in Ramadi in 2008? I'm like, yes, sir. I told you I'd be back. That was uh, kind of a moment in and of itself. He's, he, he pulls Admiral Perez over. He's like, hey, Admiral, you remember that crazy American kid that I told you about uh, who spoke Arabic in uh, Iraq? Well, he's right here. Uh, 
And then I opened my butter bars and they started, uh, you know, giving me the third degree about, uh, you know, where'd you learn Arabic? Um, how, did you, how did you learn so much about the Middle East? And I told them about my experience in college and how that was my major and how basically I'd been trying to educate myself by reading everything I could about that region. And um, ironically, our first big deployment um, began in uh, late 2010 early 2011, this was right as the uh, Arab Spring was kind of heating up. Well, you know, that's another, you know, that's another example of how small the world really is. And especially in the military, you know, if you spend any time in it, it's amazing how you'll come back to people that made an impression on you, but with those units as well. So, so you made it back. So, you know, the crazy American kids back. Now you're a junior officer and uh, you're getting ready for the Arab Spring. What's happening there? Oh, well, um, the Arab Spring, um, it was kind of an, ex- there were kind of an explosion of, uh, protests, um, against, uh, several, um, Arab dictatorships that had kind of held sway in the Middle East for decades, often with American backing. And, uh, the U.S. government, as well as, um, yeah, um, you know, from a diplomatic approach, uh, you know, was unsure of, uh, who to back or, um, what, you know, whether to, uh, maintain ties with some of our erstwhile, or, or, or erstwhile, um, allies. Nobody in a um, nobody in an operational capacity could really uh, you know tell somebody to really tell them to really tell the U.S. government which side to back. But we could uh, definitely provide some firsthand um, accounts of uh, who's who's uh, you know got what interest within uh, each of these um, each of these uh, myriads of uh, you know social um, upheavals going on throughout the Middle East. So did so, it, Ethan? Did, did it had it changed a lot since the first time you were there? I mean, I wasn't physically back there. I was on the, I was on a ship uh, this time. So rather than uh, you know focusing on just one country, I was looking at uh, I was looking at every country within the area of responsibility that we were going near. You know, Oman, Yemen, Iran, um, Egypt, Tunisia, even uh, Libya. I mean, we weren't anywhere near the Horn of Africa, but um, Gaddafi, as a nuclear power. Within the Middle East, that was uh, you know that was encountering some upheavals, um, kind of took center stage. Some research that I had done, completely on the civilian level, about the uh, AQ Khan nuclear smuggling uh, racket, actually wound up uh, being used for, as the basis for a number of my briefs. Is uh, AQ Khan was the uh, provider of uh, the centrifuge technology that was used in Iran, North Korea, and Libya, and an still as yet unidentified fourth. Client. I don't know if you ever saw the movie uh, Lord of War, did you? I have not, but I heard, I heard about it. So it, it was about that, right? Sort of. You see, Nicolas Cage plays this um, amoral, uh, you know, apolitical uh, arms dealer who basically sells small arms to basically the high, you know, all the bidders. You know, he'll, he'll supply. He, he thinks that the mark of a true arms dealer is somebody who can supply weapons to both sides of a conflict. Well. Abdul Qadir Khan and his smuggling network pretty much did the same thing, except rather than selling small arms, AK-47s, helicopters, and the like, they were basically selling a version of centrifuge technology that he had actually initially reverse engineered from the British in order to uh, provide the Pakistani government with the nuclear bomb. What's it called? When um, the Pakistani government, I guess, um, didn't, uh, you know, didn't pay him enough or didn't, uh, you know, give him enough prestige within their government, he decided to go private and uh, reverse engineer his own reverse engineering of um, nuclear centrifuge technology in order to sell it to um, people who had uh, a bone to pick with the United States. 
obviously, you know, the, what you just described, you know, points out the fact, you know, we read a little bit about it in the media. You probably knew a little bit more about it because of what you did in Intel. But again, it shows and it's another example that there are nation states out there trying to obtain uh, uh, technologies that can be used for um, devious means. Oh, absolutely. And um, what you call it? And uh, what the military does um, is unfortunately very, very necessary. And um, people talk about it all the time, uh, you know, is it really our role to police the world? Uh, you know, unfortunately, by default, um, some of the time it winds up being exactly that. I mean, uh, you ever heard of the Straits of Malacca? I have. Didn't that, didn't that the pirates used to hang out back in the day? Yep. Basically, it would become a ginormous pirate free-for-all if the United States Navy didn't uh, send aircraft carriers to the Western Pacific, part of whose um, part of whose deployment always included uh, trips in through the Straits of Malacca, it, it really is um, the, the mission of the U.S. Uh, Navy is to um, man, maintain, train, and equip combat-ready naval naval forces uh, capable of uh, winning wars, deterring aggression, and um, ensuring freedom of the seas. A very important uh, part of that is the ability to. Uh, make sure that the uh, major shipping lanes are free for international commerce. International commerce pretty much is guaranteed right now by default by the United States Navy. So, so you, you remember how uh, after World War II, um, the fear of U-boats was still so high that commerce had pretty much stopped. And it really took uh, visionaries like Aristotle and Nassus to, um, what was it called, to revive the uh, international shipping um, industry. But that industry is only really guaranteed by having a robust uh, naval presence wherever um, commerce takes place. Well, there's no doubt, you know, there's an old saying, you know, the he who controls the seas basically has the pulse of the entire world. And, and I, there is no debate. The United States Navy is by far the finest Navy that has ever been on a ship ever in the history of the world. You know, it's an advanced Navy, freaking incredible professionals like yourself and your friends, you know, and it just, you know, when I go to sleep at night and it sounds so cliche, it's nice to know that we've got a Navy like that on the high seas that are making sure that things go the way they're supposed to. And make no mistake, there are countries out there, for those of you who are listening, and Ethan has pointed out, there are countries out there that would like to do nothing better than ruin somebody's life. I don't think that the Navy, the U.S. Navy, goes out of their way to make people's lives miserable. I just don't believe that. No, it doesn't. I mean, well, unless you unless you're actually serving in it, um, it's pretty much a, <laughs> that's pretty much the case. And uh, when I saw when when I when I when I was board ship, one, one of the other things that, that I noticed was how hard, how unbelievably hard everybody works. And like I say that as an officer in a, in, a, in a, you know whose primary um, operational authority was um, my the carrier airwing, and I had it really cushy compared to most. I mean. I had seven roommates. Most of the enlisted guys were uh, staying in uh, barracks, uh, or, or, or staying in uh, birthing for like you know three or four hundred people, and maybe had six square feet to themselves. Yeah, you know, I um, you know, I was working sixteen-hour days at least. A lot of these guys were doing uh, you know shipboard duties in addition to uh, manning you know you know tw- you know twelve-hour daily watches while also. Uh, having to uh, obtain their warfare qualifications, while also having while also having to you know maintain the peace within uh, you know within their ranks, and uh, you know for them you know for me, when I was off duty and uh, you know I could go to, I was going to sleep, I was sleeping in a, you know in a uh, room with a bunch of um with a bunch of officers who had no idea what the heck I did for a living, 
when these guys that you know retired off duty, it was always uh, you know with their colleagues, and they were they were completely unable to really get away from their work at all. And uh, you know, th- 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 what's called their their ability to continue doing this, their ability to do this with a smile on their face, uh, you know, maintaining decorum, maintaining um, bearing, and uh, setting examples for their junior enlisted guys. That's something that did inspire me then, and still does inspire me to this day. And um, I, since I've gotten out, I still maintain uh, you know very close friendships with my uh, with with uh, the enlisted staff, uh, you know, with whom I worked. I love those guys. I've got all the respect in the world for them. And um, a number of them, a couple of them are out, and a number of them have actually made uh, chief petty officer now. And uh, you know, in addition to being kind of horrified that these uh, cr- these crazy SOBs are now um, responsible for uh, leading and training the next generation, they're also some of the most brilliant professionals I've ever seen in my life. And um, I consider it an honor and a privilege to have met, worked with, and at one point in my life been responsible for them. That's pretty cool. You know, when did you decide, Ethan, when was it, when did you make the decision to come home when you, when you had had enough and you're ready to move on with something different and then tell us a little bit about that transition and then what you're doing now. Okay. Um, in, um, in, uh, late 2013, I realized, um, I realized that I couldn't really continue just uh, deploying at the level that I was and, uh, expected to advance. Um, if I if, if I could have done that, I, I would have done that for the rest of my life. I'd have been one of those salty, um, you know, uh, uh, military bachelors is pretty much married to the sea. Um, you know, I would have enjoyed it, but I think I would have um, I would have lacked some uh, perspective, and um, I wouldn't have met the uh, love of my life, my wife. When I when I was uh, considering getting out, um, I was um, involved in a couple of uh, fitness franchises, just you know, to kind of you know, just kind of make a little bit of extra money and have a little bit of fun on the side. Put me in contact with the uh, head recruiter for Northwestern Mutual, and I had spoken to her a couple of times, and I mentioned that I was thinking of getting out of the military, and she's like, "Well, you know, you'd make a great financial advisor." I'm like, "Financial advisor? What's that?" But anyways, um, so while I was still in, I got my life and health uh, um, insurance license for uh, the state of California. I got out of the military, put on a suit, and started uh, and started working up in uh, in uh, corporate America. You know, in one of those old uh, military cliches. Was that a tough transition? Yes. For a lot of reasons, um, one of the things that they didn't really tell you about when they were hiring you at Northwestern Mutual, and in a lot, in a lot of places, quite frankly, I'm, I'm not trying to disparage anybody or badmouth anybody. I was kind of expected to—I I wasn't exactly hired per se. Like they weren't giving me a job exactly. They were uh, contracting me to be able to, uh, you know, transact business within, yeah, uh, you know, within their firm to people that I knew. So my, one of my first um, assignments was to uh, conduct what's called Project 200, where I, I had to list out 200 of the closest people that I knew, and I used those 200 people to generate, uh, you know, more leads and uh, to, and to uh, transact business with a lot of them. So you know that uh, cliche about the uh, guy who's always at parties trying to, you know, trying to transact business. <laughs> I kind of became that person because um, in the military, when you when you're given orders, you don't really ask questions. You don't really um, you know, you, you don't really, um, you don't really think too much about what you're being told to do. You just do it. I was told, uh, you know, to get a certain number of leads. I, I busted my guts to get that amount of leads. And uh, some of my relationships that uh, took a little bit of a hit um, because of how, uh, you know, aggressive I was. I'm not really exactly faulting the company from it for uh, doing that because, you know, I'm the one that made the decision to contact those people. I'm the one that, um, that was aggressive and uh, you know I did see some success I was one of the uh, largest 
individual producers for the class of 2015 on the West Coast. My, uh, my first year over there, but I was practically breaking my neck uh, doing that. I was cutting out friends. I was cutting out my family. Basically, I would, I, I would almost never take a meeting unless I thought it might, um, or, 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 um, or, or have any type of uh, social encounter at all, unless I thought I could generate some business out of that. And it, it left me kind of hardened, it left me kind of jaded, and at the end of that year, it made, it made me feel pretty cynical about the whole thing. Did you, um, did you have any effects from your time in the service? Did that affect your transition or your performance at all? Um, I mean, to some extent. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty high-strung individual. Um, I get pretty... Um, I deal with a lot of, you know, I still deal with a little bit of anxiety some of the time. I quell that anxiety by exercising. I quell that anxiety by, um, by developing a pretty rigid uh, routine. I think um, one of the, uh, pos- a couple of the positive effects that uh, my, my uh, time in the service really had was, um, uh, you know, in- include the fact that um, I'm extremely results-oriented. I'm extremely uh, professional. I value the people that I work with a great deal. I give them a lot of leeway and um, I provide a lot of um, and um, I've gotten very, very adept at explaining what needs to be done and uh, managing expectations of my colleagues, my superiors and my clients. And uh, I've actually pretty successfully marketed myself as a financial intelligence officer and I owe a lot of that success to my time in the military, the product training that I got from Northwestern Mutual, and uh, my background as an intelligence officer. Because uh, during my career, as short as it was, I was not a SEAL, I was not an aviator, I was not a surface warfare uh, um, uh, sailor, I was not a CB, but I worked with people from all those communities. I had to learn in pretty short order who they were, what they needed, what made them tick, and how I could best be of service to them, and how I could best translate my abilities to be of service to them into a language that they could understand pretty quickly. Because um, one thing that most of my clients have in common with most of my commanders is they have very long lists of responsibilities and very short attention spans. You know, it's obvious to me that you're, you know, the 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 skill sets that you did learn in the Navy and the skill sets that you learned as a young man growing up in California have served you well. You're very de- detail-oriented. I mean, you'd be nuts not to see that. But, you know, I mentioned at the outset of the show that and where we met, the Military Influencer Conference over in Orlando, you're on a new project now, U.S. Vet Life. Yeah. And I know that company's pretty innovative. What's going on with that? I actually found U.S. Vet Life by accident. Um, Scott Tucker, our uh, chief pop, um, executive officer, had, had a background very similar to mine. Uh, he got out of the service and uh, was recruited by uh, you know big time uh, financial services uh, warehouse and uh, he like me was a top performer in that field but he got a little bit um, he, you know he, he saw what he was being asked to do over over uh, over the long term and he was asking himself can I really do this and uh, you know he, he felt like he was kind of putting his soul into an organization, you know, not, not unlike the military. You put your soul in an organization, you kind of learn to fall in love with it. It doesn't really learn to fall in love with you back. So he realized that he was, he was working with everybody except the people that he cared about the most, which, are, which is uh, the military. Uh, the military, as a general rule, um, is built by geniuses to be run by idiots. <laughs> I like the way you put that, yeah. As a result of that, I mean, I mean, there, there's a lot of there, there's a lot of um, method to that madness. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of good reasons to have a military structure that way. But uh, one of the side effects is when it comes to uh, military benefits, there's really nobody that's around that can really educate people in the service about how to make the most out of the benefits that they're provided. 
and how to, you know, you know how to how those benefits really stack up against what's commercially available and how people who are in the service who um, which are, who are being handed these benefits left and right can actually navigate and leverage these benefits that are available in the on the government level and in on the commercial level to really set themselves up for success while they're in the service, while they're transitioning out of the service, and even years after they've gotten out of the service. Scott um, brought me on board because um, you mentioned me being very detail-oriented. I'm very motivated by processes. I'm a big uh, nuts and bolts kind of person, what we call in Yiddish the tachlis, or the uh, details. That's the part that uh, you know makes me kind of excited. And uh, I was able to, sh- to help uh, Scott really explain to our people our, our, um, our staff, our clients, whomever, how we can blend knowledge of the military benefits space and the financial services space to really set our fellow veterans up for success. One of the things that uh, Scott and I, I both share a, um, a desire to really help is that to really turn the uh, quote-unquote transition pro- uh, assistance process on its head. Because there's two words when put together that evoke a lot of uh, negativity, and those words are military transition. The word military has a lot of martial connotations, a lot of violent connotations, and so forth. And the word transition, you know, evokes ideas of people who have been incarcerated or who need some time to be uh, reacquainted with, uh, you know, civil society. And, uh, you know, the fact that they refer to the transition program as the transition assistance program indicates that uh, people get out of the service as broken men that need to be rebuilt. And quite frankly, the uh, very opposite is true. People get out of the service um, having developed camaraderie, having developed leadership, having developed um, adaptability and having developed uh, work ethic and uh, and a, uh, a devotion to results that is impossible to replicate within the civilian world. So we we, uh, we prefer to uh, reframe the uh, conversation around veterans' liberty and opportunity. They're being liberated from their you know from uh, being pigeonholed in service. They're uh, you know they're being liberated as veterans, people with uh, with understanding, with maturity, with wisdom, with experience. And we uh, our real goal is to give them the feel the sense of liberty and opportunity in front of them. You know, U.S. Vet Life is obviously an innovative, educative, and uh, and something that's very beneficial and needed. And we had talked about that even with this podcast, Straight Out of Combat, that there's this impression that people coming out of the military or people in the military are loose cannons, and that the only reason they're there is because they can't find a job anywhere else. And you know, watch out for them because they're going to go crazy on you. And and that's just not the case. You know, I'd much rather be, you know, sit in an office or in a, out on the beat with people that have served in the military than those that maybe haven't. And no disparaging those civilians either. But there is a little bit of an edge, like we talked about, the edge that military people, men and women, carry with themselves. And you guys are fitting right into that, you know, and I did have the opportunity to meet your CEO and, and you guys are doing some great things. I'm excited to see what you do in the future. And I know it's going to be awesome. But I wanted to ask you a couple things. What is this? Three questions. I'm, I'm testing your analytical mind now. And All right. Three, que- three, three questions. What does freedom mean to you? What message do you want to give to the civilian population about veterans and especially combat veterans and to the men and women who have worn the uniform? Based on your experience, Ethan, what do you want to tell them about reintegration into the civilian network? 
Okay. That's a lot, right. but I know you can do it. All right. So your first question, let me make sure that I understand this. Um, what do I want to, uh, sorry, I can repeat that first question. What does freedom mean to you? Great question. Well, freedom means to me, um, the ability to really, uh, you know, to really, uh, you know, provide the type of service in the community that I want without really being uh, super concerned about uh, feeding my family, uh, you know, the ability to take on challenges head on from a position of strength and uh, the ability to pretty much write my own uh, book of life without, uh, you know, without having to sort of, um, without having to um, be super reactive and uh, choose whichever path will uh, cover my needs the quickest. That's kind of, uh, that ladder is really what people are kind of thrown into when they leave the service. Um, They're going from a situation in which their needs are, are accounted for to a situation in which they have to account for their own needs. And uh, if they choose the default path, and, uh, you know, it involves going to job fairs and, uh, re- and uh, civilianizing their resume to make it look like a whole bunch of other people's, and then going to find, uh, you know, some of these, uh, you know, J-O-Bs just over broke that, uh, you know, they kind of uh, pigeonhole them. And a lot of, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to disparage um, employers that, uh, you know, that, that show up to a lot of these uh, military hiring fairs, you know, because they are performing a really great service. But the, the reason why that service is really necessary is because a lot of guys who are in the service are sort of uh, being put in a position of weakness. And then uh, their transition assistance program, uh, you know, kind of steers them towards the path of least resistance. I, want, I, I foresee a day when uh, people in, who are getting out of the service, um, you know, have the financial freedom to do whatever they decide they want. Uh, you know, they have the ability to, uh, you know, start their own business, uh, you know, or go on a cruise throughout the world or go buy a house or, uh, you know, go do whatever it is they, uh, you know, they've always wanted to do that the military kind of help them back without having to look over their shoulder and, uh, you know, make sure that their bills are going to be paid, especially the ones that are married with children. Uh, you know, the spouses and children of people in the service have, uh, you know, they're the glue that holds a service member together, and uh, they're the ones that um, are often um, kind of leveraged to force uh, guys in service uh, into those boxes. But um, they should, uh, you know, they should never be made to want for anything, and they should be, uh, they should be free to um, be that uh, veterans cheer squad. If that makes any kind of sense. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. I think that's great. You know, great wisdom there. Um... You know, there's a lot to think about, you know, and, you know, and, and you're so right. You know, we all can I think we can all benefit from from this process of education, but also from actually reaching out and making it work for all of us involved. You know, this, you know, this great feeling of lack should be a, a great feeling of there's enough for all of us to go around, especially in the greatest country in the world. Um, Absolutely. And uh, one of the things that um, one, one of the things that our government um, always does is the, our government is a very reactive body. It's not very proactive. I mean, when I say reactive, uh, you know, you see statistics about guys in the service, uh, you know, offing themselves, 22 of them a day. And, or uh, you more. know, yeah. Or, you know, more. or more. Yeah. And uh, you know, divorce rates, uh, you know, from unhappy spouses, the military, you know, throws money into this stuff to try and plug the holes uh, one by one. If the military and the government were more proactive, they would say, we want more millionaires coming out of the service. We want more leader, more civilian leaders coming out of the service. The nature of uh, bureaucracy and governments is that they respond only when there's a problem. Um, individuals and uh, people in the service with the know-how and with the uh, devotion that we have 
um, can see an opportunity and try and proactively steer people towards that opportunity. Yeah, well said. You know, so and then so what? Do, two more things. What do you what do you want civilians to know about the combat veteran, and what do you want your brothers and sisters to know that may be in a dark place? Uh, what they can do to turn that around for civilians. Um, first of all, I want to thank civilians for their contributions to our service. Civilians love thanking veterans for their service. I got lucky that I, I wound up serving in a very military-friendly uh, climate in the United States. My admiral, Admiral Perez, who I, you know, who I still am close with, who I actually just had lunch with a little while ago, actually said, "I, this, our civilian population has provided." what is most precious to it, to the military. It's sons, it's daughters, it's wives, it's husbands, and it's money. And as a veteran, as a, as a veteran, I am a steward of that military to which these civilians have given that which was most uh, precious. And I feel like I owe it to them to make sure that um, veterans, uh, you know, come out, uh, come, you know, come out of that other side as leaders, as as uh, heroes, and as um, and as people that they can be proud of, and um, I, I, I want to thank our civilian uh, community for their contribution to our service. And the best way that um, that, that you guys can uh, I've heard uh, thank you for your service uh, you know more times than I can count. I appreciate that a great deal. I would tell um, I would tell veteran I would tell uh, civilians who want to um, interact positively with veterans. Maybe to tweak some of their language so that uh, rather than telling a person, thank you for your service, which is kind of a conversation starter, uh, which, which is kind of a conversation finisher, into tell me about your service, which is more of a conversation starter. Engage, you know, you want to thank a veteran, engage the veteran, ask the veteran a little about that, about their uh, experience, kind of the way that you're doing with me, although you, you and I did both serve, uh, what's, what you call it. But in that way, you're taking on some of their story. And uh, and uh, making that person feel like uh, they're part of um, they're, that, that their time in the service um, is not this separate thing that can't really be uh, defined or mixed in with the civilian population. And uh, you're giving the veteran the opportunity to make that time in the service, uh, you know, relevant to you. You know and what? That- this is this is Ethan. I got to tell you something, man. Out of all the, the over 45 interviews that we've done here on Straight Out of Combat, you're the first veteran with that answer to thank the civilian world i'm telling you man that is a great 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 bit of advice and and i I, awesome man all i can tell you is that uh, it's unique but but the way the way you put it makes so much sense thank you awesome man you know um, I, I can't really take credit for that. Um, it's called that, that uh, some of that credit actually comes from my wife, Suzanne, who uh, you know who's listening um, in the next room, who I love, and uh, some of it also actually comes from uh, Admiral Perez. Um, I want to give him another shout out if you haven't uh, heard from me, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, um, enough, sir. Um, he, um, when I was having lunch with uh, Admiral Perez, he was talking about he was talking about uh, you know how you know what makes him so devoted to duty, and that was his answer. And uh, you know, you get you, you, you listen to a guy like that. I mean, he was he was regaling us with stories of deployment that I had even forgotten. He was even regaling my CEO and me with detailed um, recollections of briefs that I had given him that I didn't even remember giving him. That's like we said earlier. You know, the, re- the what you just pointed out with Admiral Perez is again the reason why we have the world's finest navy. 
because of yep. leadership. And it all boils down to leadership, not only in the junior officers or the enlisted, but in the guys that are actually running huge operations. Oh, that's, yeah. that's very cool. So, you know, maybe I'll get to meet that admiral someday. Who knows? Maybe we'll have him on the show. But, you know, tell us, what would you say to a service person that's out there that's struggling with that transition? What would you tell that person? Well, first of all, um, you're not alone. I don't think there is a single person who got out of the service who um, who had you know who had uh, you know a, a, who had a perfect uh, fair winds and following seas type of transition. It's a new set of orders, probably as poorly defined as any you'll ever get, and um, about are about as uncertain as any you'll ever get. But um, all I would say is that organizations like the Military Influencer Convention in uh, Orlando and um, organizations like U.S. Vet Life are out there are out there to try to uh, you know try and simplify uh, and simplify a couple of things. You're going you're navigating a bureaucratic miasma without a lifeline the way that you the way that you used to have in the military where you could just uh, you know go where your commander tells you to go. You are taking on the role of of um, operational unit intelligence uh, provider and commander of your own life. You have resources out there who can provide you with the intel and who can help uh, you know provide you with a map to get to where you want to go. And if you, and, uh, if you're not sure where you want to go, we have resources available to help guide you to where you, uh, to help you define where you want to you know um, what it is exactly that you want. Maybe it is uh, working uh, with uh, U.S. Vet Life. We'd, if so, we'd love to have you. There, there is no better teammate that I'd lo- that I'd want working with me. In, you know, side by side, tr- helping me train my staff than somebody else who's been in the service. Most of our staff, uh, about ninety-eight percent of our staff, is actually combat veterans. Um, a number of uh, another uh, another plurality of them are uh, the spouses of combat veterans. They are some of the most tenacious, hardworking, fun-loving, and brilliant people I've ever seen. And uh, we, there's always room to expand. I will tell you one other thing: whether you want to come work with us or whether you want us to uh, come help you, we will never ever charge you for our for our assistance. We're not a nonprofit. We do get paid, but not by our clients. And um, if you have any questions, we're always there. To, we're, all, we're always there to lend an ear. Awesome. And if you want, and if you're looking for a place to, uh, you know, hang your hat and uh, you know, develop some actionable skill, we're more than happy to have you. So, where can people go to find out about uh, your company in particular, and then you? You know, if somebody wants to make contact with you, and if they have more questions, uh, Ethan, let us know about the company, where they go, and how they get you. Um, our, our website is really easy to find. It's uh, usvetlife.com. You can learn you can, learn, you can learn all about us. If you want to come find me, my email address is ethan at usvetlife.com. And I, I promise you this: just as when I was in intelligence, I never ever tried to pretend I knew an answer when I didn't. I will never steer you wrong. I will make sure that I will make sure that you get the best possible answer. If I don't know it, I'll make sure that I, I'll make sure that you know that I don't know it, and I'll, I'll make it my business and my priority to make sure that I get you the answer. Whether it's something actionable that I can personally benefit from or not is immaterial. By the fact that, by virtue of the fact that I'm there and that I can help you, I'm benefiting. I'm benefiting from it, whether I'm, any more money gets in my pocket or not. And I just wanted to say one other, one other thing. 
the barometer of whether I get paid has nothing to do with you. And I want you to, and um, our concerts are, our consults are always free. And yes, we do get paid, but not by our clients. Well, thank you for pointing that out. All I can say is I'm really uh, honored to have met you, Ethan. I'm glad we made contact in Orlando. I know I'm going to see you again. You're doing a great job and, uh, you know, appreciate you and hearing your story and having you here and appreciate your wife supporting you, you know, uh, since you're, you know, making it back to the States. And uh, all I can say is, you know, there's a there's still a road ahead. We're going to move ahead and we're going to do it in fine fashion. And I look forward to our next conversation. Any final words from you? Um, John, um, I just wanted to say it's an honor and a privilege to be here. I read, I checked up a little bit more on you and uh, you sure, you sure, you shared uh, your story. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, um, I'm almost wondering if I should have uh, reversed uh, these roles and had (laughs) you know, shoot your face off about that. Um, but it's wonderful what you're doing over here. And um, for any veteran who's listening to this uh, straight out of combat, um, our purpose is to, t- to get your stories out there and uh, to show what people who have had military experience, um, boots on the ground experience uh, really are and uh, can accomplish. Um, the civilian world um, is in need of true leaders. And uh, the the best, the most amazing type of leadership that's available today is uh, the ability to lead troops on the ground uh, um, called in, in uh, parts of the world that uh, most civilians wouldn't touch uh, with a 10-foot pole. If you're a veteran, you did that. You deserve, you deserve a lot of congratulations. You deserve a lot of uh, praise. And you deserve every single opportunity to pursue the American dream, whether you're in or whether you're on the way out or whether you've gotten out 10 years ago or 30 years ago. Well, there you have it. Some great advice from Ethan Samuels, U.S. Navy veteran, a high charger, high charged uh, energy guy in the financial fields with U.S. Vet Life, uh, going places, moving things. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you. Thank you, John. You have a great day. Before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken.